Star Wars, The Godfather, or The Matrix, everyone knows that the third episode of a trilogy is always the worst. I promise this will buck the trend as I conclude what we started over the last two episodes looking at writing meta software to monitor software services for the purposes of collecting metadata. Up until now, we've concentrated on monitoring services to make sure they continue to work reliably at all times. But what good is a product in being reliably operational all the time if it has no users? This week, we help answer the question, are you useful? An empire is not built as a straight line from A to B. Startups talk about finding product market fit and may pivot their product and business model multiple times until they find it. Even when a company has found success as a leader in its field, they still need to know that their users are happy to come back again and again. New product offerings are expensive investments and the product org, working closely alongside their engineering counterparts, want to know that their users are finding new capabilities useful. In the early history of Instagram, it was just some site for liking and sharing photographs, following people and leaving comments. Why did Facebook pay $1 billion for it? Google similarly paid $1.65 billion for YouTube when it had a functionally similar video sharing platform called Google Video. The answer as to why they did this is in the product metrics. Those big tech companies could see that consumers were using the challenger's products and not the incumbents. For Facebook, the demographics of the Instagram users were an existential threat to the survival of the social media giant in the long term. They had to pay a fortune before Instagram got any bigger. In the age of television, cinema and print, media companies could look at viewing figures and the box office returns at the weekly or monthly cadence. With modern day analytics platforms, Tech companies can now know everything about their users, anticipate future usage and trends, experiment with new features, and verify almost in real time how their strategic decision-making is paying off. Ad-blocking software doesn't just stop websites from showing you advertisements. It also spends a lot of the time blocking tiny JavaScript files, which are analysing the smallest details of how you interact with sites. There's an awful lot going on in that little client-side JavaScript library, sending user telemetry back to the third-party analytics platform. They could look at the speed of the scrolling up and down a page, record what's in the viewport when you pause for a minute, follow the path of button presses you make as you go round from site to site. The biggest tech players, the FANG companies, will have third-party sites inject some of their own JavaScript so they can learn about users as they navigate all over the web. Of course, this tracking is available to any app. Welcome to the world of web and mobile user analytics, of terms like booking funnel, RUM or real user metrics, DOM ready, customer acquisition, activation, referral and retention, cohort analysis and user segmentation, geolocation, device detection. Say hello to companies like Amplitude, AppDynamics, Clicky, Matomo, Mixpanel, Supermetrics, and these minnows, Adobe and Google, have some analytics products as well. If it sounds like there's lots to it, the market cap is in the tens of billions of dollars. These analytics platforms provide utility to multiple different functions within a company, 
They sit at the cross-section of growth marketing, sales, product, machine learning, and of course, engineering. If for nothing else than it being an engineer that has to put the two lines of code in the web app that instructs the user's browser to download a client-side analytics script. Those two lines just get you the basics though. To truly understand how products are being used, companies need software engineers to instrument their products with, you guessed it, more meta software. There's that trilogy. The ability to create and track a holistic marketing strategy needs engineers to associate business outcomes with the correct button clicks in their software services. As such, we'll spend a bit of time learning about the different facets of user analytics. It's not only user analytics though. Analytics platforms present their users with polished front ends to help give business insight to a few specific and crucial product aspects which every web and mobile app needs to be concerned with. Every product will have its own unique challenges and business metrics to consider. And for these, we need a general backend data store, which is optimized for this type of query. Every product will have its own unique challenges and business metrics to consider. And for these, we need a general backend data store, which is optimized for the type of queries we'll throw at it. This is the world of business intelligence, or more simply, BI. Example platforms include Microsoft Power BI, Tableau, SciSense, and Snowflake. Underlying both user analytics and business intelligence is a read-write pattern of data which differs from that of how software services persist data. An app needs to insert, update, retrieve, and delete data instantaneously on demand. Analytics needs to ingest a large stream of new data. Thereafter, the data is historic and immutable. Updates aren't required, but large insertions and large complex aggregated retrievals are. The latter type of database solves many of the architectural challenges by using on-demand asynchronous jobs that mean delays before new data can be queried, sometimes by as much as a day. This is the difference between an OLTP, or transaction database, commonly used by software apps, and OLAP, or analytical database, commonly used by analytics and BI. That's a massive subject in its own right though, but today we'll summarize it as use the right database for the right job. For analytics and BI, that's using an OLAP persistence technology. The concepts we're looking at in this episode involve learning about what is important to product managers so that when you as an engineer or business leader are asked to collaborate, you'll know why. For product managers, Product market fit is the beginning of making a solvent company that will be around for the long term. Finding product market fit is the all-encompassing goal for product managers. To hypothesize about what it could be, to throw out prototypes in front of users, and to conduct experiments which look to answer definitively whether product market fit has been found. Before a company has aligned on product market fit, no one can really say what the company will become. This is why the term pivot is big in tech, because you try out a hypothesis and go to market trying to convince people you have a lot of value to share. If the market doesn't agree, then you pivot to a more promising idea. When the secret source has been found, it's an all-out sprint. You need to tell the world what your idea is and use all the tricks in your bag to execute faster than anyone else. For some product ideas, no one will care and you'll get a free run at it for years. Sometimes that's because it's a terrible idea, guaranteed to fail. But some, though, you get to fortify your foundations and become the incumbent. 
You may have to move in secrecy, like how Google went around buying up data centers without letting Microsoft know about it, because they wanted to keep it quiet how big the web search market cap was. Product analytics are the foundation of how product market fit is found. If you are in an early stage startup, your product manager or CEO will be demanding in their asks of engineers. It sounds counterintuitive spending time writing meta software for analytics platforms and shallow prototypes instead of the real deal, but there is method in the madness. Think of the time spent finding product market fit as plotting a direction to somewhere you want to go first before expending too much energy powering aimlessly forward. From the theory of diffusion of innovations, for a new product idea to become self-sustaining, it needs to reach at least 16% of the market, that is, the innovator and early adopter groups. The remaining groups, early majority, late majority and laggards, are the reward for a company with vision, courage and execution. A company has product market fit when it believes it has found a product that it can make and a market of users they believe they can go out and capture. Engineering has to play their part in helping product do that successfully. Operational data such as telemetry and logs, which we learned about in the last two episodes, is used to ensure we're working today. Past data are sampled to reduce space, but mostly you won't be holding on to operational or performance data from years ago. Quite the reverse is true of analytics and BI data. This stuff is gold dust and should almost always be retained indefinitely because you never know how or when it might be useful in future. These data treasure troves aren't only useful to product managers though. The rich valuable data that analytics platforms hold provide insight, evidence and trends for sales, marketing, consultants, legal and data scientists. Engineers need to make sure their product works. Engineering teams are also expected to show how their product works by continuously recording their business data for the rest of the company to interrogate. When you use a software product, there are multiple interactions between you and the app until you reach some payoff. You could be a creator of content with TikTok, YouTube, Photoshop or Unity. You could be a consumer via Instagram, Reddit or Twitter. Or you could be a shopper on Amazon, eBay or Etsy. Regardless of the goal of your time spent in the app, there is a path of taps, clicks, scrolling, swiping and key presses that result in success for user and company alike. Product managers care deeply about this. They want you to succeed in your aim of uploading a video, interacting with content or making a purchase and they want new people to learn how to do it quickly and experienced users to get there seamlessly. Consider that the path for one of the above goals could take the user across three different screens requiring three text boxes to be completed and two button pushes to be pressed. Product managers use funnel analysis to understand how well users in aggregate move from one state in the process to the next. We'll start with a web app that's had a million users in the last day who logged in and reached the first screen. A UI analytics platform will have a page where a hypothetical funnel is drawn starting with 100% of the users at the first screen. The funnel narrows as only 85% of the million users makes it to the second. At each stage, the funnel gets narrower as users drop off. 
Product managers are looking to understand if the site intuitively guides their users to the goal. They want to know if there's a sudden drop-off, for example, say the funnel narrows from 85% to 5%. That indicates there's something wrong with the page because most users cannot navigate to the next step. The analytics platform can partition users into different cohorts to see if there's something that could explain why one group makes more progress than others. Say the 5% who remain are all desktop users, there might be something wrong with the mobile version of the site. This isn't a product management podcast, so we'll not digress too far into the techniques product managers have available to them, but understand that UI analytics platforms help product managers make sense of how millions of different users interact with an app and give them ways to create actionable insight for where to guide the engineering work next. Cohort analysis empowers product managers to learn more about just where the product optimization is needed. For every user who accesses a site, several pieces of metadata are collected about them. The type of device they're using, the speed of their network connection, the country of origin, the type of browser they're using, their preferred language locale, plus many others. The analytics can use one or more of these categories to create cohorts of users and compare their experience and outcomes versus everyone else. Real user metrics, also known as RUM, can record and aggregate data about the DOM ready time of how a web page is loaded, that is, how quickly all the HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and image assets were downloaded. RUM is concerned with how long it took the user's browser to load everything into a working page on their device. These tools can point to a specific flaw that a software engineer might not notice themselves. For example, assume the engineers have powerful laptops with blazing fast internet connections. A user on a cheap mobile device connecting via a 3G network could have a considerably slower experience if image optimization hasn't been considered. And this is something that analytics platforms can show if a team decides to look for it. Software engineers can manufacture their own bespoke company cohorts by partitioning their users into custom groups. One of the most common reasons for this is to perform A-B testing. This is where a small cohort of users is shown an alternative version of the app to test out how subtle product differences affect product outcomes. A-B testing is the good technique for optimizing products, giving insights as to how engineers could change the product to maximize business goals. For example, make the most number of users complete their purchases successfully. It's easy to be swayed by a human speaking to you, like I'm doing now. It's easy to consider the emotion that a person uses when conveying a message to think that the stronger, louder ones are more important. Data help cut through the emotion. I used to work on a customizable white label search product in a two-sided marketplace. For this product, there could be a feature that the power user, the people who are your biggest fans or critics, will say is essential. It could be filtering results by provider. If you do not have this feature, they will not use your product. They will shout and scream at you about the importance of this feature. But what did the data show? That 95% of users do not use the filters. It's not the case that the feature shouldn't exist, but seeing the data show that only one session out of 20 uses the feature, then it shouldn't take up too much space in the UI. After data analysis of the product was done, it was found that there was a sharp drop-off in usage after the highest six used custom search features. 
As such, the UI could be drastically simplified with the remaining custom features hidden in an expandable range. This is the simplest example. The use of company data is limited by the imagination of a company. Here are some of the other main consumers of business data beyond product managers. These include analysts, data scientists, and growth marketers. Depending on the company organization and culture, analysts go by several different names and belong in one of many possible different business functions. For example, it could be data scientists in engineering or business analysts in sales. The skill set shifts and ebbs between highly mathematical to highly literate. These people are conduits and interpreters for the raw numbers, an interface between an unstructured data lake and creative non-technical company employees. By being a compelling human storyteller, they can use data to direct and drive the company to executing in the right markets in the right ways at the right time. Big data became a big buzzword of the 2000s. A data set is big if it's too large to fit onto a single computer. Google and other big pioneers perfected techniques that allowed the data to be processed or persisted while being partitioned over multiple servers, notably MapReduce. In the days before big data, the skills to be a data storyteller were fairly simple. The BI database had simple table schemas, which could be queried quickly. Insights communicated were straightforward and not a lot of work was needed to manage the OLAP database. After big data, there are multiple skills needed to enable this storyteller role with potentially multiple different people performing different jobs. We've already discussed the analyst who can log into Tableau, create a dashboard or author a complex SQL query to answer a business question. As the amount of data produced and their computing power available continue their exponential increase according to Moore's law, two new technical skill sets have emerged. These are data engineers and data scientists. Depending on the size and maturity of the company, these can be one and the same person. Data engineer. These engineers have the skills needed to repurpose the data for other engineering teams. They take unstructured data lakes, which could be petabytes of CSV or free text files in object storage, like AWS's S3, create data processing pipelines and queues to perform the same operations on each file, and output an aggregated total. For example, they could use Apache Hadoop or Spark to execute a map-reduce workflow. Events could be pushed into real-time streaming platforms like Apache Kafka or Amazon Kinesis or pushed into big data analytic query engines like Redshift or BigQuery. Most of the data engineer's job is operational and almost janitorial in nature, keeping the data flowing and everything clean, structured and in order. Data Scientist Scientists use the work of the data engineers to create magic new capabilities with structured data. Unlike analysts or product managers who analyze and interpret the data, data scientists use statistical models or other techniques as artificial neural networks to find patterns in large data sets. The patterns, once understood at scale by software programs, yield data products. Many of the most profitable services in the last two decades have been built on pattern recognition in large data sets, notably user-targeted advertising, individual recommendations, and generative AI. In the information age, creating products based on data can be profitable, but an inherently risky moat if the data are public or cheaply accessible. 
Data products make the most sense when you have your own private, secure data source. It makes much more sense to pursue avenues like this in a company with millions of customers than one with hundreds or thousands. Startups are about scale. Scale is about growth. Growth marketers want to use the flexibility and scale of software automation to understand exactly how their strategy is landing with their users. Because data collection can be targeted at the lowest level of an individual user, and because software can be changed as frequently as you want, more about that next episode. Hundreds of different marketing ideas can be considered, designed, implemented, rolled out, and crucially measured in weeks. The ideas themselves can be wildly different, but by measuring the same key metrics, growth marketers are able to make judgments about which ones are helping the company scale and which ones should be dropped. A marketing strategy to find and bring in a user to your product or service can be evaluated with a metric called CPA or cost per acquisition. How much money did we need to spend over and above the amortized cost of creating and running the service to bring in one new user? What is the CLV, the customer lifetime value? Already you can imagine how different techniques of bringing customers in yield different costs to acquire and different lifetime values. If you went out to a random street and offered hundred euros in cash to anyone who gave you an email address, that's an expensive acquisition channel where you're unlikely to get any custom. That's a CPA of over hundred euros for a CLV of close to zero. Consider now that you found a channel where you could send a message to people who you knew would be interested in your product, say, one in 100 would sign up after learning about your service. If that service cost $1,000 to reach 10,000 real users, that would be a CPA of $10. If those users on average made you a profit of $30 a year, every year, well, I'm not going to get into bootstrapping yield curves to work out the lifetime value of $30 a year, but that's a profitable marketing strategy at least. Growth marketers are interested in network effects how one person's network of contacts can organically grow certain marketing strategies beyond a standard unit cost and become viral. Like a corporation buying the rights to media, they could turn into a meme. Some companies use what are called pirate metrics, A-A-R-R-R. You know, written down it looks like R. Pirate metrics. I have grudging respect for this acronym. They stand for acquisition. How many new users are you acquiring? Ones that can actually log into your product. Activation. How many of those users have actually used your product? Retention. How many users come back again and again? Referral. How many new users are likely to be generated from a single activated user? And finally, revenue. How much money do you make off each user? Activation is an extremely interesting concept to drill into especially as how it relates to product market fit. Startups are often trying to create a new product that the world hasn't seen before, and so users might not understand how it works in the earliest stages. Let's look at a couple of definitions for product activation for two of the most ubiquitous tech products. For Google, search is performed. Given Google's first goal was search, the number of searches a user performed would be a key activation metric. Clicks on search results. The ultimate aim of a search is to find a relevant result, so users clicking on search results indicated successful activation. Twitter. Tweets sent. 
For a new user, sending their first tweet is a big step towards activation. Accounts followed. The value of Twitter increases with the number of accounts a user follows as it customizes their feed. Engagement. This can include metrics like retweets, likes and replies. Engagement would indicate the users are not just passively browsing, but actively participating. As a software engineer, you do not need to be an expert in growth marketing. This is just one of the many roles like product management, finance and sales that are dependent on your systems emitting product metrics to let them know where the company is and more importantly, where it's headed. We finish today by talking about one final group of people who get to use product data created by the meta software developed by engineers. The engineers themselves. People aren't robots. We're not 100% in engineering or 100% in product or 100% in design. Each of us can put ourselves in the shoes of another role and have an opinion about something. One great tool that product managers have is to agree key performance indicators or KPIs with the team of engineers. These are measurable metrics that can be tracked day after day, month after month, that are chosen to be correlated with success for the team. This empowers engineers to propose and construct their own ideas about what a good product feature could be. It also gives them a useful tool to judge the implications of how to implement features by considering the effect of an approach against a KPI. A team might have a KPI for the number of daily active users and the P99 latency of the time to load the web app. There might be a metric for the number of days from the first user login to creating three workflows in the web app. An engineer faced with these KPIs can make assumptions about the importance of making the web app fast, easy to use, and offer something to returning users every day. We've covered a lot over this trilogy of episodes to do with meta software, and much of it was only tangentially related to writing your own software. Thinking about today's topic of product metrics, so much of it is in the wheelhouse of product managers. Why am I stressing the importance of concepts from product and growth marketing? Simply because the tools and concepts they use define the key decisions that make or break the product that's built. An engineer who knows how to build is useful. An engineer who knows what to build is invaluable. Back in episode one of the Engineering Culture podcast, we learned that good engineers have a mix of skills in programming, development, and operations. Great engineers need to speak the language of product. So even if they don't know the CLV of the software services they support offhand, they know the person who does, why it's important. Within this trilogy of episodes, we've looked at some important meta software that we need to develop to ensure that the software we make for users works, is reliable, and provides them with value. As a software engineer, you will be asked to create these layers of meta software, so it's important you understand the purpose of each so you do so effectively. We looked at three questions. Are you up? Are you available? Are you useful? The first, being up, is the primary responsibility of the engineering manager. The last is the primary responsibility of the product manager. Being available for a set of key features is the responsibility of both. When product and engineering are working together in lockstep, some pretty amazing things can get built. Thanks for sharing your time with us to think about the meta software needed to run a successful company. 
You're doing great today, even if it doesn't feel like it. See you again for more mind-shifting concepts about modern engineering culture. Farewell, until next time.